some of you are grandparents, aunts and uncles, parents, and you give gifts to your children, grandchildren, nieces, nephews, you might send birthday money. You're generous at Christmas. Some send money on other special occasions like graduations and so forth, and you help them in other ways throughout their lives. I remember my great-grandma Ford on my mother's side. She used to scotch tape brand new freshly minted pennies into my birthday card every year. And as I grew older, the cards grew heavier. My grandpa Lee, that's my dad's dad, used to send us $2 bills on our birthdays. I've saved several of them, and here's one. I took a picture of it for you. Maybe you have special remembrances like that, people who are so good and generous to you. Every Christmas, we could count on my Uncle Brian and Aunt Barbara to send us a package uh, from Omaha Steaks, and each year the apple turnovers are delightful with a scoop of vanilla ice cream. Well, I'm thankful for all of these ones who are so generous over the course of my life, and I imagine you are too. When we receive these blessings, it's good to send a note, a thank you note. But if you're like me, sometimes you forget. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand, but I imagine some of you have given a gift and you didn't get a note or a thank you or anything, and others of you have like me, have received a gift and forgot to send a note. When I was growing up, my mom would always remind us, be sure you send a thank you note. Sometimes it was a stern reminder, and sometimes I would still forget. But that did not stop the generosity. kind of reminds me of God. Even when we are not so grateful, God still gives. God's just like that. God gives to us without expecting anything in return. This brings us to the story that we just heard when Jesus healed nine men with leprosy. And I appreciate how the scripture translators have put that into the New International Version. He healed ten men with leprosy. He didn't say ten lepers. He didn't define them by their disease. Ten men who happened to have leprosy. And then the scripture says nine of them didn't send a thank you note, not even a text message. Luke tells us that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem, and as he was entering a village, there were ten men with leprosy who called out to him, Master, have pity on us, or Master, have mercy on us. And then Jesus told them to go to the priest and they would be healed. They would be cleansed. This artist rendering, this is a painting by Gebhard Fugel, a German painter, lived in the late 1800s, early 1900s. And you can see the distance between the men with leprosy and Jesus as he's walking along the path. 
scholar William Barclay says that it was not uncommon for people with leprosy to remain at least 50 yards away from any other person who was coming along the way. They had to separate themselves from the community, isolated with their plight. Luke then says, one of the men, as he was going to the priest, realized that he had been cleansed and decided to turn around and say thank you to Jesus. And then Luke tells us that this man happened to be a Samaritan. That was a double whammy to have leprosy and to be a despised Samaritan because Jews and Samaritans did not get along. We read along and we think, well, why were the other nine so ungrateful? Why did only one return to Jesus? And often we can make the story about the other nine and how they were ungrateful and how we need to be more grateful in our lives. And certainly that's one way that you can or that we can interpret the scripture and draw some meaning from it. Don't get me wrong. We should say thank you. We should write thank you notes when we receive a blessing from someone. We should model that for our children and encourage them to be thankful in that way. But I am convinced that there's more to the story than focusing on the nine who were ungrateful, who didn't say thank you. I want to focus on the one who was grateful. And I believe that he models for us spiritual passion something that we need to reclaim in our lives as we go through life as God's members of God's church. First, a few important things as we lead to that. This is a story about Jesus at the border. This was his final trip to Jerusalem. Luke 9.51 says he turned his face to Jerusalem. And here in Luke 17, verse 11, he turns his face toward Jerusalem for the very last time. This is not long before the triumphal entry during Holy Week. It's a story about Jesus who didn't go around Samaria, but who went right through. In John 4, you remember that story. The Bible says that he had to go through Samaria. And there he encountered the Samaritan woman at the well when she was there by herself because she had been shunned from her community. Jesus at the border. He had come to the border of Galilee and Samaria. There was no physical border wall like you would see if you visited El Paso, Texas, my birthplace, where there are significant walls there on the border of the Rio Grande. But back then there was no physical border wall. Oh, but there sure were plenty of invisible ones built over the century of strife and struggle. You look at the Bible map there on your screen, you can see up at the top the Sea of Galilee. That's where Jesus had come from. And he was making his way toward Jerusalem down at the very bottom left of your screen uh, to the left of the Dead Sea. And there in the middle was the border between Galilee and Samaria. And there was a path along the way. And Jesus, if you will, can imagine him one foot in Samaria, one foot in Galilee, and teaching his disciples that this is where we are supposed to be. We're not to avoid it. The Greek here in Luke calls it diamesos, which means in between 
or in the middle of the two provinces. And there, Jesus encounters this group of men who had had leprosy. They were outside of a village. One of them happened to be a Samaritan. Samaritans and Jews did not get along. There were age-old strife due to the Samaritans having been taken captive during an ancient Israeli war. They were placed in this area in Samaria, not valued or wanted. And then the conquering king forced people from five different cities to settle in that area. All of them intermarried with the Jews who were there. They began to worship their own gods. Jews felt that these people had perverted their religion. Samaritans were looked at as uh, unclean people, people who were not welcome into the family of God, and so they just did not get along. And I believe that Jesus is walking along the border here to help his disciples and us know that Jesus gave his life for all people, that he came to seek and to save all who were lost. So there he is on the border. And these ten men begged out for him. They had heard he was coming, much like Zacchaeus heard that Jesus was coming through Jericho in Luke chapter 19. These men had obviously heard that Jesus was coming through their village. He had by this time gained a significant reputation of as one who loved and healed, and they begged him to have mercy on them. They didn't dare get too close to him. Their prayer is found several times in Luke's gospel. We know it as the Kyrie Lazon, translated, Lord, have mercy. Leprosy would characterize most skin diseases in Bible days. They didn't understand biology and science and medicine like we do today. Leprosy could have been any number of skin disorders back then. In particular, when someone had a disease of the nerve endings, we might liken it to neuropathy today, where your feet can get numb, and if you don't take care of them, if you aren't careful, if you uh, cut, get a cut or injure it, you could get an infection easier. Well, back then, these men, uh, people who had leprosy often had a, a disease of their nerve endings, and they would get an injury. Maybe it was because they uh, were scrubbing floors, or maybe they didn't have shoes to wear, and they cut their feet, and infection would set in, and then leprous symptoms would spread. So these, these folks were not contagious, but others uh, saw them as unclean. In fact, back in the Levitical codes in the Old Testament, they were deemed unclean. They had to be separated. Leviticus 13 verses 45 and 46 say, anyone with such a defiling disease must wear torn clothes, their hair be unkempt, Cover the lower part of their face and cry out, unclean, unclean, if they were in presence of someone else. As long as they have the disease, they remain unclean. They must live alone. They must live outside the camp. To be deemed cleansed and clean, one would have to go show her or himself to the priest. Priests served as not only priests in the Jewish religion, but also as sort of your local health department official. 
and the priest would determine whether they were clean by examining them, and then they would have to follow some certain prescribed orders in the Levitical code to be uh, fit to re-enter society. So Jesus is telling them to follow the rules. He's he, he heals them, but he wants them to follow those rules. He wants them to go back and show those priests what had happened, and perhaps they would have a significant testimony as to how it occurred. They did exactly what Jesus did, told them to do. All ten of them left. Jesus didn't say, come back and thank me. He said, go and show yourselves to the priests. So all ten of them did that, and this one happened to turn around because he had experienced something perhaps greater than the others. Not only he was physically healed, but spiritually healed. The word for healing here is the same word we find for salvation. It's the same word we find in Luke 19 when Jesus said in the story of Zacchaeus that the Son of Man came to seek that which was lost, to save that which was, to seek and to save that which was lost. This man who had leprosy was healed physically, but he was also healed spiritually. A story about Jesus reaching beyond the borders at the border and about one who experienced whole healing. This is also a story about God. It's a resurrection story. This healing reminds us that God's activity doesn't depend on our proper response. God doesn't wait for a thank you note to fulfill his promises because God is always doing something new. The God who created all things is always doing something new. God entered into a covenant with his people through Abraham. God is doing something new. God led the the Israelites out of Egypt, out of slavery. He's always doing something new. And God does not say to us, if you only had enough faith, I would send Jesus to suffer and die for your sins. Rather, it was because we had little faith and desperately needed salvation that God sent his one and only son, that we might have life and have it abundantly. Paul writes in Romans, while we were still yet sinners, Christ died for us. He paid it all. One of my favorite hymns is Jesus paid it all. I heard the Savior say, thy strength indeed is small. Child of weakness, watch and pray. Find me, thine all in all. Lord, now indeed I find thy power and thine alone. Can change the leopard's spot and melt thy heart of stone. For nothing good have I whereby thy grace to claim. I'll wash my garments white in the blood of Calvary's lamb. And when before the throne, I stand in him complete. Jesus died my soul to save. My lips shall still repeat, Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. My sin had left a crimson stain, and he washed it white as snow. That's what this man experienced when Jesus touched him and healed him. He actually touched him spiritually because he's, he, did, he, he just spoke words to this man. He responded to his prayer and said, go show yourselves to the priests. 
and you will be cleansed and they experience healing along the way. But Jesus didn't wait for people, for these men with leprosy to praise him and worship them, him and then heal him, them. He healed them first and the Samaritan man responded right away. God doesn't wait for us to have enough faith. God acts first, and God is always doing something new. God's actions lead us to a faithful response. Jesus died for everyone, but not everyone responds to Jesus. Not every seed we sow of the gospel will take root, but we keep sowing the seed. Only some people respond with proper praise and thanksgiving for what Jesus has done for us. And that is the case here in this passage. Nine of them went on their way. One of them returned. I believe this is what we are called to as we are on mission, sisters and brothers. Many will hear, but few will respond. We just need to do our part relentlessly and trust God with the rest. He will give us the power and the passion to do his good will and his good work. Jesus said in Acts 1, chapter 8, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. That's Acts 1, 8. Now we get to the spiritual passion part as we, as we wrap up. Gratitude may be the purest form of spiritual passion to God when we are thankful to God for all he has done for us. Gratitude is a form of worship. This one Samaritan man came back and threw himself down in an act of worship at the feet, at the feet of Jesus. It was an expression of spiritual passion because he had just met the Lord. It's been said that we are never as close to God as when we first became a Christian. I wonder at times if we are never as thankful to God as when we first believed. I have to think about that in my own life. Have I allowed myself to become complacent in my faith? to go through the ropes, just to go through the motions spiritually. Can God, can you help me reclaim that time when I accepted you as my Savior and it, like this man to throw myself down at the feet of Jesus and renew my spirit to him, to reclaim my salvation as I seek to serve him. Church, how's your spiritual passion? If you were to think about it on the level of 1 to 10, meaning 10, the most spiritually passionate and the one the least, where are you? You don't have to respond out loud, but I invite us to think about where we are. And can we invite God into our lives to help us uh, to be more spiritually passionate? And perhaps that can come through thanksgiving. As we think about this one man, who returned to Jesus, threw himself at Jesus' feet. We think about applying it in this way. 
Don't worry about the other nine, y'all. Be the one. Don't worry about everybody else and where they're at with the Be the one. We are only responsible for ourselves. We cannot be responsible for others' decisions. Be the one. Be the one who is available. The Samaritan man bowed at the feet of Jesus. He humbled himself and made himself available to Jesus. Like the prophet Isaiah who met God in the temple, then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And Isaiah said, Here am I. Send me. Be available. Lord, make me available. Lord, sometimes we serve out of our giftedness and our abilities. But sometimes we serve because there's a need in the church. It may be out of our comfort zone, but God calls us to be available. May we be available to the Lord Jesus. Make me available to be your witnesses here in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Second, be set apart. In the Old Testament, when a person with leprosy leprosy was deemed clean by the priest, the priest would anoint their ear with oil, the priest would anoint their head, then their ear, then their big toe. It was as if they received a cleansing whole body, head to toe. When Jesus Christ becomes our Savior and Lord, we receive an anointing of the Holy Spirit immediately at salvation. We don't have to work for it or wait for it. It comes. We are sanctified and made holy as he is holy from our heads to our toes. We receive an anointing and we are set apart for his work. We are called to be active. And by the way, this little outline here I gleaned from Dr. Wayne Faison last week at the Baptist General Association meeting. And I thought, uh, that Lord, that, that just fits right in to the sermon for this coming Sunday. We're called to be active, to make ourselves available and to do his work. We go into all the nations and to baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and to teach them everything he has commanded us. And fourth, we are called to do amazing things for God. Ordinary things become amazing when we do them for the Lord. William Carey was a British Baptist preacher and missionary, 1761 to 1834. He spent most of his life as a missionary to India and is known as the father of the modern missions movement. And he said, expect, expect great things from God, attempt great things for God. May you and I do amazing things for the Lord, even if they are simple and ordinary. Paul writes, now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than we could ask or imagine according to his power that is at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Often the longer we are church members, the less we believe that God is doing amazing things. Church, we want to reclaim our salvation. We want to reclaim our baptism. 
We want to reclaim our spiritual passion and have the kind of passion that we had when we first believed. And this one man who returned to Jesus threw himself at Jesus' feet to say thank you models that for us. It's almost as if God is saying to us, I want you to think like a brand new believer. Someone who's never experienced it before and has a spiritual awakening. And Bible scholar Fred Craddock writes of this posture saying, It's often the stranger in the church who sings heartily at the hymns we have long left to the choir. The stranger who expresses gratitude for the blessings we have not even noticed. Who listens attentively to the sermon we think we have already heard. Who gets excited about our old Bibles. And who becomes actively involved in acts of service to which we just send small donations. And and Craddock asks this question. Must it always be so? Church, must it always be so? 